Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Yak Gadgets. For all your fine quality kayak fishing accessories, go to yakgadget.com. Pelican cases, cooler, and lighter. Go to pelican.com. And the 153 Bait Company. For all your hunting stock bait needs, go to the 153angler.com. Now let's join our special guest around the campfire. Welcome back, everyone. Your host, Brad Hurlbus, another episode of Feather and Fur here. And tonight we have on Ryan Potter, so we're going to just get right to it. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thank you for having me. It's been a fun little challenge getting this going with some computer <laughs> issues and a couple other things, but we finally got it worked out. So, I mean, I, I feel like we got all the technical stuff out of the way, so the show should just go really well, right? Don't say that you jinxed it. I jinxed, it, I jinxed it last night. It was all on me because I tried to record with two guests, like, and only leaving a 40-minute window. And I just don't do that because I know, like, karma's there. And it's like, uh-uh, you're trying, you're trying too hard now. you got to take it back a notch. Yeah, it. Uh, like I said, last time I did one with my buddy Aaron, it was the same thing. It was an hour of technical difficulty. So uh, probably our fault for not going over that first. <laughs> That's all right. We're here now. Everything's good. It's winter. It's cold. It's like I don't know if it got above zero here, and then you're north of me, so. Yeah, it's um. This morning I went to work. It was negative one, and then by the time I got home, I think it was about sixteen. So yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't warm at all. But we really haven't had a lot of cold weather up here the last you know couple of weeks. We've been pretty actually, fortunate. You were actually warmer than me. I went to work. It was negative sixteen. Really? Yeah. Oh, she was brutal. It was about nine o'clock in the morning. I was on a work meeting and they're like, how's the weather by you? I'm like, seven, negative seven. And they're like, what's negative? Yeah, negative. Yeah. <laughs> I walked out. It was there. It was, there wasn't a temperature. It was zero. 
Um, but yeah, yeah, it warmed up. Sun was out. So I thought for a while it was going to snow, but um, mostly sunny skies today. Nice, nice. Then, so might as well just get right into it. Uh, how, like I, I start off every everything with like, the, like, how did you get into hunting? Like, was it a family tradition that you kind of molded into you, late onset? You're like, you know what? I want to do this and just dove right in head first. No, I mean, it was, it was a family, uh, family tradition. Uh, my dad had a family of uh, 12 siblings. Um, so seven brothers, the rest sisters. And uh, I mean, they all hunted together. And I mean, I can remember even as a kid, I think as early as six or seven, um, I was up North with my dad started squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting. And, and then we got into deer hunting. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been in my blood. My brother and sister never got into it, but I, uh, I, I went full fledged, man. I didn't, I've done everything really except trapping. Sure. Sure. Trapping's a whole nother world. Like I don't have any experience in that. And I'll be honest, nope. I don't have the time to check trap lines every day. I'm too busy. Right. But- and, es- and especially with me in Southern Michigan, um, if, if I was going to start, it, it would be a lot to, to get into that and you know i would have to spend some time up north um or some farm fields down here to get some farms that i actually uh coyote on um but like you said you have to check them every day so i don't have that kind of time this time of year i give all the credit um, to the people that can do it i mean that's some dedication that i just don't have <laughs> yeah absolutely it uh you know i was talking to some people today um, about checking trap lines up in Minnesota, it was 20 degrees or negative 20. Um, and they're out there at six in the morning on a snowmobile, um, checking traps. I'm like, that is, that is insane. Checking those before you go to work and, you know, getting out in that, that negative 20 degree weather. That's, that's pretty intense. That That's dedication. And I, I give them credit too. Cause I mean, it's those guys that are they make a good name for trappers, right? Because I mean, a lot of a lot of times trappers can get a bad names because people don't necessarily know exactly what they do. But it's those guys out there that take it serious and take that to a professional level. I mean, they're the ones that are giving them a good name, and I give them all credit in the world because, like I said, I don't have that type of dedication. Yeah, I agree, and it's I, the knowledge that goes into that. Just your, you know, all the different set sets, the way you can set them. You know, the snares, the leg holds, I mean, all of that. And just, you know, I've been watching a few on the Sportsman's Channel, some trapping shows, and just the way they set that and their knowledge of, you know, where to put that and, like, pinch points and trails and everything. I mean, that's there's a lot of knowledge that goes into that. Absolutely, especially for those the guys that are successful. Being able to, like, look at tracks and, like, identify animals off that. And, like you said, pinch points, using your terrain, I mean – they, I, yep. I, I don't have that type of knowledge level. I'll admit, I mean, if I had that type of knowledge level, I don't know how I'd ever go a season without shooting a deer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I just, you know, we were talking about the predator hunting. This is just something I got into last year. And it was almost on a fluke that um, I'm up at grouse camp at least 30 days. Um, yeah. So I get up there the end of September, uh, try to come home right around Halloween, maybe a few days into November. But every year we would be at our camp uh, in the in state land and uh, we would have them surrounding our camp. Um, you know, especially if we had a dog in heat at grouse camp, they were, they surrounded us. So, I mean, that's kind of what got me into it. Um, and just like anything, as soon as I have an interest in something, I just start blowing money on it. So, oh, and that was, pro- 
you think you think grouse hunting gets expensive? I mean, yeah, you have the dogs and everything, but I gotta see if my wife's listening to this. The the amount <laughs> the amount of money I have spent in the last year is insane. <laughs> yeah, she's over there rolling her she's rolling her <laughs> eyes at me. <laughs> That's funny. Like there, I mean, it's funny because I just was having this conversation, a similar conversation with a guy I had on the podcast before, Upland, Arizona, big quail hunters down in Arizona. Mm-hmm. The guy just went waterfall hunting for his first time, and I'm like, you think you think quail hunting's expensive? Wait till you start looking at waterfall hunting, and predator oh, hunting yeah. isn't far off either. I mean, the amount, some of the you know the guides and are in the guys that are pretty serious about that, like just their boat setup. You know, the amount of decoys and and I'll tell you what, you talk about some hardcore guys, those waterfowlers, you know, up here, uh, I follow quite a few of them on Instagram, like Nick Cart, that guy, the amount of work they put in, you know, four in the morning to get those decoys set out, you know, before first light. I mean, that's, that is real work, you know, grouse hunting, following a dog, you know, you're walking a little bit predator hunting, you're carrying a gun on a tripod and then you stand there for an hour. Those waterfall guys are hardcore. If I, I should pull up some pictures of my boat from the last hunt of the year. I had that thing so buried in the mud. It took us over two hours to get the thing dug out. It was bad. Oh, it was man. bad. Yeah. It was flat, and I knew it was and I knew it was flat, and I knew it was lat, low in water, but I really thought I'd get the mud boat through it. And I came in pretty hot knowing I'd have to, and by the time I realized how bad it was, I tried to spin her out of there, and I just couldn't. We just stuck. Uh, and that's, oh, you know, especially if it's like the only vehicle you have too. Oh, that, there was, I, I, I did have another buddy hunting down the way. I didn't want to ruin his hunt. So I'm like, if I, if I can't, if I don't have this thing out by eight 30 or nine in the morning, you're going to have to come give me a tow. Thankfully <laughs> it was, this was at like three 30 in the morning. We got out by like five 30 and still set up before sunrise. So it wasn't right. even, like, we still had a decent hunt, but man, I mean, November burns me out because like like you spend all of October up north grouse yep. basically. I spend most of my majority in October. I'll do a couple of duck hunts here and there, but my most of my October is spent chasing grouse and woodcock. And then come November, I flip that switch and I go right to duck hunting normally to get that last month of duck and waking up at three o'clock every morning and being out on the water by three. It gets to be a grind. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like with me, you know, getting up at, at grouse camp, the first week early season i'm pretty much by myself but after that i mean i'd say this year we probably had a dozen people come through some stayed for a week some stayed for a few days but it gets to that point like i have the first week week and a half by myself which is literally the worst part of the season i it's hot it's sticky there's bugs um, but after that I have, you know, there's people coming in and out. So usually after the first week of October, I don't even pull the trigger. I don't think I shot at many birds, um, after the first week, you know? So, I mean, there were some times at camp where we had a, a day or so or an evening that there was nobody there. So my wife, I'd take her out. Um, she'd run her dogs, but it, it wasn't, <laughs> I did not do a lot of actual shooting myself this year. So do you guide them? I'm assuming, I mean, if you have that many people, are you guiding or is it just family and friends that come up that you let hunt over your dogs and you take more of a so, mentorship role? So, so both, like I've mentored quite a few people over the last couple of years. 
I am a guide, but I, I don't, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I don't do it for money. I do it for the write-off. So all that expensive stuff I buy, <laughs> it's a, it's a write-off for my business. So, um, but 99% of the time, like I, I give my time to people. Um, I don't, I don't charge them. So if there's somebody that wants to come up, I had a, a friend of mine, Brad Marshall um, from Virginia, he came up and we hunted a few days together and um, it, it was cool. Good dude. Uh, first time I actually met him, you know, it's, it's the Instagram thing. We had been friends on Instagram for a while and chit chatted and um, he came up, I think he was up for at least a week. So we made some plans, uh, met up in the middle of the state and uh, we got some good shooting in the first day uh, he came up. So the second day, it poured. And when I say poured, like it, the woods were soaked and, you know, being up there 30 days, I can kind of pick and choose when I want to hunt. He was, he came up to Michigan for a week. So he's like, well, let's go out. I'm like, man, I don't, don't, I don't make me. So <laughs> we, we took his dogs out right by my camp. Um, and he had, I'd have to confirm it with him because I know he was keeping track, but I say in probably an hour and a half, we moved probably 40 woodcock and two dozen grouse. One of the best days we had, but buddy, I will tell you, it was, I was soaked to the bone, Um, but he was happy, you know, and I'm, I'm glad he got to, to get his dogs into that many birds, but it was to the point where his dogs, even when they weren't ranging far, you know, 40, 50 yards, they'd go on point. You'd, you'd bust three to four woodcock getting to that. And these weren't flight birds. These were actually resident birds. Um, so there's a special spot that we hunt. Um, I don't shoot birds out of there. It's mostly to get young dogs in there, get the young dogs, um, get them some experience. Or if somebody comes up, you know, that's either new to hunting or they want to get their dog out you know, I'll put them on some birds, but it's rare. I will shoot any birds out of there. Cause it's, you know, a couple minutes from camp and you know, you're into that many birds. It's, it's pretty good for a young dog. Absolutely. I mean, those are those training grounds that you just, just have to keep special and keep hidden. Yep. And only and that's exactly what we call it. it. Yep. That's exactly what we call it. The training ground. So um, there's a, there's probably about four of us that, that run dogs through there, but we don't, uh, we don't kill a lot of birds out of there. And I mean, that makes perfect sense too. Cause I mean, wild birds trained like teach dogs more than pen raised birds ever will. So, I mean, if you can find a little honey hole like that, where you've got resident birds and you're able to, and they say a grouse's range isn't all that far. I don't, what is it? Five acres or something like that? Five to 10. Yep. Five yeah. to 10 acres um, for so the, I mean, for the males. So, I mean, if you're not pushing them out of there and you're not shooting them out of there and you just bump them, I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's continual training area. So this spot I'm, I'm referring to, I started hunting up in this area, I would say in 2000, in this particular area, probably about 2006. It's been the same ever since. It's It's been like that for over 15 years of, and they've not cut anything. It's just the same. Um, it's kind of a, a different unorthodox grouse woodcock cover, but there's always birds in it. It doesn't seem to grow. It's almost like this whole area is stunted. The, nothing grows in it. So, um, you know, and after hunting it so many years, you can almost tell when you take a step, you're like, yep, there's going to be a, a bird right on the other side of that tree. And you can almost call it that, that they're going to be there. That's crazy. It's, it's almost like out of like some sort of Stephen King novel that that, that area of woods is just <laughs> like it's alive, but like it doesn't age. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's how it is. And what's fortunate is, you know, I see people drive past these spots all the time and don't stop, which is nice. Because um, sure. if somebody finds that, it's they're going to pound it every day. Right, right. Especially, I mean, especially if they're only up there for a week, right? Because now yep. they just found some amazing cover, which... I mean, I hunted Michigan for the first time ever this past year up in the UP. I've, I've mainly stayed to Wisconsin. So, I mean, I was hunting new area and there's maps. I mean, you have Onyx. Michigan's got good mapping software just right off yeah. their website, everything else. I mean, not all of it's 100% accurate. It gives you a starting point. And it's a lot of driving around and it's a lot of boots on the ground, especially if you've yep. never been there before. Like, you're kind of like, well, you can look at a map. It only gets you so far. So, I mean, I... I I completely understand what you're saying. Like, thankfully, people drive by that because if they catch that, oh, they, you're right. They're going to pound it. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, and like you said, back to the mapping thing, like um, a lot of people recommend that my hunt, that MI-Hunt app, it, it kind of shows you uh, what the terrain is, you know, the tree type uh, ground coverage. But a lot of it's from like 1940. So yeah, it could have been, you know, Aspen back in 1940 that was cut and logged then, but now it's, it, it's, it doesn't match up. So there is a lot of, um, you know, getting excited about going to that place. And then you get there and you're like, it's a, it's a gravel pit. You know I mean? It's, it's, we're talking 60, 70 years ago. I had that happen quite a few times where I'm like, all right, like this looks like it should be good. Like it's got the great, like good transition. Like the year ages look good, 2012 and whatnot. You get back there and it's like 40 year old pine. And it's like, did they never right. update this map? And yeah. of course, every time I ran into that, it wasn't just some quick little drive from the resort cabin I was staying at. I'm like, all right, we're going to go farther back in than most people probably would. And it's 20 minutes down a tiny little dirt one lane at that point through the national forest. And you get there and you look around, and you're like, Oh man, I wish I had a beer because this was a complete waste of time now. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. A lot of people drive by stuff and they just keep going. So when uh, Brad came up to hunt with me this year, I had marked a couple spots from a, a scouting trip I did in August and we drive by this spot and it's, it's ma super mature Oak. And I pull in there and he's like, where, where are we hunting? I'm like, we're going to hunt on the other side of this Ridge. And I'm going to be honest, I wasn't expecting to find what we did. Um, but when we pulled up there, we went down kind of in this valley. And like I said, it's all mature oaks. There were eight grouse down there. So he and so my bacon dog goes on point, you know, so I'm trying to get on the other side of the ridge and, and Brad comes down, bird comes up and shoot, he shoots. And I, it looked like the, you know, the bird kind of, you know, darted off to the side and, I thought he hit it. So just to make sure I pull my, you know, I shoot a 28 and pull up and it's gotta be a 45, 50 yard shot for me. Um, and I just pull the trigger and sure as hell, man, that bird hit the ground. Um, so it, but it was still alive, it, but you know, we, I hit the wing. So, um, my dog ended up finding it and everything, but yeah, we moved eight grouse uh, just out of that little bowl there. So, and, and again, it's like, if you pull up to the spot, you're like, there's nothing in here, but right. it, it's just, it goes to show you, you know, and, and I've always told people that too, that I'm up there for so long, you know, for a month, there would be days where I would just park in the, 
weirdest spot and just start walking with the dog. You know, the weekend hunters, they can't afford to do that. Like they have to, you know, try to get to where they know. And, but also by doing that, you're hunting everything else that everybody else already has. So by me, you know, especially that time of year with the false shuffle going on, you're going to find them in the most unorthodox spot. So I would just park, start walking and just, and come, you know, come across birds. So, it's I have the luxury of doing that. Not a lot of people do. And that's where it gets difficult. Like what you're saying, like the weekend hunters, I was up there for four days and that's especially when that's the first time in the area, like you're, like you're up there to hunt birds, right? So you're going to try to drive around and find those prime covers. But if they're easy to find, everybody's hunted them and those birds are extremely pressured. And that's the thing is you got, and, and I see it too, that a lot of people will, you know, especially out of staters, They'll go straight up 75, you know, like Michigan's here. They'll go straight up 75 and then branch off each side like 20 or 30 miles. So that corridor down the middle of Michigan gets hammered, um, sure. you know, because people don't want to start venturing out to each side. Um, and the further north they go, there's not as much, you know, when you get up towards the tip before you get into the UP, there's not a ton of state land up there. But you get up into the UP where you were hunting, man, it's – you can hunt for days and days and days up there, but there's, there is a ton of state land and good state land up there too, especially like go, go Gebic side. Cause you come through go Gebic, right? Uh, I did. I did. I would, I, that's not the area I was in. I don't want to call out. I don't like to try and call out specific. No, areas, I wouldn't either. You know what I'm I mean? just talking about a lake yep. that's in the, in yep. the Western <laughs> UP. Yeah. So, no, no, yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Um, I was, I believe, if I remember right, we're, I, I know we're good, I was east of there. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. you really can't be much west of yeah, there, though, because you're right at the, at the border. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's beautiful country, you know, but that's also the country up there where you don't have a cell signal. You know, something does go wrong. Like, you need to plan that out. And a lot of people – you know, especially that have just started out into the sport or into the outdoors, they're not prepared for what can go wrong up there. So they tend not to go back in as, as further as they, as far as, as far as they could, excuse me. So they're hunting again off those roads and not really getting more than a mile off those roads. So if you have the wherewithal, the knowledge to take a few more steps, you're going to hit so many more birds up there. Oh yeah. And and like you said, like just being prepared. I mean, there's a handful of things that I, like when I'm up there by myself, you, there is no cell phone service in a lot of areas and you are kind of right. on your own. And like, a lot of these are unmaintained old fire roads and lo- the fire yep. roads aren't bad, but the logging roads, old logging roads. I mean, a lot of them are unmaintained. I mean, you don't yeah. Know and they'll be on a map, but you go to turn down one, it's not even there anymore. Um, there's, there's literally trees growing right in the middle of them. So, um, and that goes to show you again, back to the mapping thing that you can't, what's on those maps you can't trust. So you, you kind of got to go find, go find it for yourself. And there's a lot, I mean, you have to be able to self-rescue, like, especially if you get mm-hmm. stuck, like I bring traction boards with me. I have a come along, I have a saw a lot of times. Like if I'm going back, if I'm up there, I'll have a chainsaw on me if I need to, cause there's yep. a lot, you can't turn around always. Like yep. if you've come into a fallen tree across your road, I have a full size pickup truck on those roads. You can't just go, Oh, I'm going to turn around. It's not possible. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Especially like, 
you know, and especially if you got like a two track that goes down and has valleys on each side, you know, you get to the bottom of that and you're like, can I make it up the other side? So, I mean, there's been a lot of, of situations, um, and I'm not worried about myself. You know, I've, I've been an EMT since 98. So, I, I mean, I have a, my medical um, rescue knowledge, but my biggest thing is the dogs, you know, even though I know how to fix anything. I mean, the first thing I do if something happens to the dog, I call my wife and she gives, you know, cause she works for a veterinarian. So um, she calms me down, kind of, kind of tells me what to do. So. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many different random hazards out there. You just never know. I mean, this year right. I, had a, I, I had a new one this year, uh, our grouse camp. We were in a slightly different area than normal. We were on the Western side of the state and we were hunting some marsh edges cause it was super hot, like in the eighties for grouse camp in the middle of October. Cause we hit the year before it was in the single digits and snow this year was in the eighties. Cause that's just how it's got to work. It just can't be nice and easy. <laughs> got the puppy with you. Oh, I can't hear you. Did you pull out, did you pull out your earphones a little bit? No, is uh, it, can you hear me now? Oh, now, I can hear you. now I can hear you. Okay. I don't know if I hit mute or something. Um, you know, and that's the thing, um, the, the last couple of years, especially, it seems it has been extremely hot in October. Um, I mean, hell, I don't even imagine, was it back in 2007, we had days, um, in the beginning of October, it was like 90 degrees almost up here. So it's, it can get, it can get super, super warm still. And it doesn't seem like we have the cold that we used to either. Sure. To finish that story real quick, like talking about crazy things you run into, my my Griff flushed a bear this year. Really? It's the first like time. A, I mean, a full, full size like, or like a cub? No, full size black bear. But now, oh. they, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, that's a first. I mean, I hunt bear country. I have friends that run bear dogs that are bear guides. I'm not, I'm somewhat familiar like with bear from them and everything else. And Thankfully, that bear just took off. It was after it was the weekend after bear season ended, so I can't imagine how many dogs had after tried to ram that bear already. So that thing saw a dog and just took off. Thankfully, but oh yeah, I'm sure they get used to that after a while. They know what's on the other end of that. But that's the first time I looked, and I'm like, "There's a bear running out of that bush." Calling my dog back, get over it. You're not chasing that. No way. How, how so? How did your dog react? Was it kind of surprised? It, yeah, I was kind of surprised. It kind of just looked. It, it didn't chase. I just called her back real quick, and I hit her with a little bit of stimulation right away. Like, nope, that's not what we hunt. I figured, right, it's good, I figured it's a good training point right there. Like, hey, this isn't a smell you want to associate with. Like, this isn't an animal we're going to chase. I'm going to give you a quick right. nick. You didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but I don't want you to have any type of pleasant experience with a black bear. No, and and I agree with that. And that you know that's a good point that having the obedience in those dogs especially one like yours that is like versatile, like fur. Um, right. My pointers and my trial bred short hairs, they're afraid of big stuff. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they don't mess with that. So um, I've been pretty fortunate. Um, even porcupines. I've had really one incident and that was this year. Um, my wife's female pointer Jetta took a stroll out of camp this year and was gone for about 11 hours. Um right. And she's old, you know, she's, well, she's 10. Um, she, we don't really hunt her a ton, 
Um, not as much as the other ones, but she was like a couple guys residents up there found her about six miles away with a few porcupine quills in her nose. But I, it's not like she was like grabbing it to grab it. She was probably, you know, cause she's super friendly. She probably went up to smell it to see if he wanted to hang out and, you know, <laughs> try to, try to get back to her mom. Um, but the guys that found her had a, she said she had a couple. Yeah. Hey, tell me how to get back to my folks. <laughs> You stay here. He won't come shoot you. Just tell me how to get yeah. back. Yeah, I'm telling Yeah, that was uh, – it was a scare because she left. She ran out of camp. And, like, usually we're in this big open field. We don't have any issues. We let them out. They run around. They don't go anywhere. Uh, my wife was getting ready to put her back in her crate and turned around, and she was just gone. Um, so we spent – and it was one of those days where it was – it rained. It was sleeting. It snowed. Um, it was super windy. Uh, and then even in the middle of the day, we started hearing uh, coyotes start howling. So now we think like she's in with, you know, getting in trouble with a with a coyote. So it was a pretty stressful situation. That's yeah, not going to lie. When those coyotes start sounding off and like that's yep. one thing that's like, like I said, we changed girls camp for the past two years now and every at least once if not twice in the five to seven days depending on how long i go up there like you're serenaded by wolves when you go to sleep like oh no kidding oh yeah and it's like man like that's always in the back of my head like if my dog gets away like coyotes are one thing coyotes are one thing like that's not good wolves are a whole different game and you guys don't have any season on them either do you last year it was opened up this year was closed to the DNR not having proper procedures in place. So they were able to close it that way. So I talked to a, a Michigan DNR guy kind of, you know, he's a, a in the UP and we kind of talked about that a little bit. And I guess he said when they opened Wisconsin's season, they really didn't have everything lined up the way. And I guess they ended up shooting too many or something or, I don't know. So he both, said it didn't go the way it's planned. Both uh, the first time the Wisconsin season was opened, uh, when they deleased them for just that little tiny period, that's when they set the groundwork and they went over that season. And then this past year, last winter, um, they worked off that old framework, which was technically, I think they said outdated or something. I'm, I'm not 100% up on it. Um, but I do know we went over quota. And I know a couple of bear guys that Yep. That hunt in the, that have bear camp north of where the, I've been having grouse camp, and they lost a couple dogs from wolves. And as soon as that season opened, bear camp was the, the, the furnaces were fired back up, and they were up there with all their dogs, and they hammered the pack that was taking out their dogs. Like they did oh, no good, good. Like they did some serious. Like talking to them, he's like, I think they had the first wolf on the ground ten minutes after the season opened. <laughs> That's not messing around. No, they were out with a mission and they've succeeded. Good. You know, and that's the thing is it, it seems that more people on the other end of the spectrum are trying to protect them versus, you know, the sportsmen and the hunters trying to explain why we need to keep that population in check. But, you know, I, it, and it's always been like that. It always seems like the other, the opposite side of us is, has more, you know, more manpower and, and willing to do more than we are. I think 
I, I see it, but I think that this one's, I think Wolves are even a little more tricky because you said that opposition, which is just hard no, which you have that with all types of hunting. But right. then, like, it seems like the loud ones for hunters are the ones that say kill them all. And, like, the sportsmen's, like, sportsmen's that want to manage the population, like, like we do with everything else. We manage habitat. We, like, we're conservation at first. Like, I see, I feel like when it comes to wolves, we're just all kind of slightly quiet. Like, it's like this really loud shoot them all or this really loud don't hunt them all. And the conservationists that I would say make up most hunters on this issue seem awfully quiet, actually. And I don't know if it's because we're, we don't want to get in this fight. Or maybe we don't think like the fight is ours. I'm not sure. You know, I, I, to me personally, I think it would almost be like a lack of knowledge and knowing what your talking points are. You know, anybody that that does not like something, they can give you a million reasons why they don't like it. On the other end of the spectrum, where you know the people like you said, the conservationists that want to keep that population in check, they don't know how to go about that and portray that to others of why we need to do that because they don't have encounters with them. They don't know the stats of of you know dog versus wolf encounters. You know, and I and I'll admit too, I don't know much about it either. Um, Talked to a couple guys in the UP that that say they're a nuisance. They have a few packs around, you know, where they live and everything. But I, you know, I honestly I wouldn't know enough to, as far as like our numbers, the pack. I don't know any of it. And neither do I. And, and maybe that's it. Maybe it's a lack of education for the like the conservationists to be able to step up into this to make sure the season does continue to happen. Right. I mean, the guys that talk a lot, the guys that have the knowledge that I know are the bear hunters, are the guys that are out there dealing with wolves all day with their guys. Absolutely. I mean, literally, look at how many dogs they are running out there, and they're chasing those predatory animals. Like you said, your dog finds one, you know, finds a bear, and it kind of just, you know, what was that? And same with mine. Like, my dogs aren't searching them out. They're not seeking them out. They're not going to get in a confrontation and try to take it down like one of those bear dogs would. Like, they will go after that. Um, my dogs don't do that, which I'm thankful for, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would, that would be a trip. Yeah. I'm happy. It's hard enough to keep my grip focused if she runs into a rabbit, like, man, like you said, like versatile dog with fur. I'm telling you, man, there's something with her head. Like if she hits a rabbit scent, it, it, it takes everything in my power to flip it back to hunting feathers. Cause all she right. wants to do is bunnies at that point. And I'm not out there to hunt rabbit. <laughs> You know, and that's the thing. Like I said, I with the pointers and everything, they have zero interest in them. Absolute zero interest in any fur. Which, See, like I, I said again, it's it's nice. I mean, they might point it. Like if if it's sitting there, they'll point it. But if it takes off, they're not going to chase it. I mean, they well first they know better because if I'm not <laughs> flushing it, they're not allowed to look at it. So you know, it's uh they do have that kind of you know obedience, but. Um, they're just, they're not interested in it. Like, and it, especially if there was like one, you know, running away, it wouldn't try to catch it and eat it. it sure. So, sure. which is nice. Yeah. It's one less thing you have to worry about. And it's not necessarily a worry. It's just like when I like, especially like pheasant hunting on like the state lands around here. Cause I hunt a lot of marsh edges cause it's all put and take. So I just do it to get the dog some exercise really. Cause it's not something I really enjoy. I, I'd rather just go buy birds at that point and take a youth out and guarantee right. birds. But um, yep. like I hunt a lot of marsh edges, like the thicker stuff other people don't want to touch. And we run into a lot of rabbits and I get these gorgeous points. I'm like, here we go. 
all right, she's locked up. And, and there goes a rabbit. I'm like, come on. <laughs> we're we're through this marsh, breaking ice. You lock up and it's got to be a bunny. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been there, you know, especially too, like, you know, late season. A lot of times our woodcock season closes before they leave. Like we don't get, we're not getting flights, you know, until into November, you know, and, and by that time, I don't shoot a lot of woodcock anyway. So, you know, we get a dog on point. I'm hoping, you know, it's going to be a grouse, you know, trudge through that thick stuff at a hundred, 150 yards. They get up there and it's a woodcock. And I'm like, ah. So once they leave, that's my favorite time of year. You flush the bird and the dog's like, why didn't you shoot? Because the dog doesn't know. The dog's got no you know, idea. and that's the thing. And I, and I, and a lot of people, I, I do joke about that, but I don't shoot a lot of them. Um, over a first year dog, you know, I'll shoot a few, um, let them handle them. But it's, it's not something I, I seek out. I would rather try to find, um, you know, after they kind of get their, first and second year, you know, knowledge of, of running them after that, I'll try to go with spots with just, you know, just grouse. Cause it, it, it gives them a little bit more knowledge instead of pointing those birds that are, you know, 15, 20 feet in front of them. So, sure. you know, I think they learn better to, you know, handle grouse when there's not woodcock around. And that makes sense. I mean, you can put a lot more pressure on a woodcock. A dog can put a lot more pressure on a woodcock than they can a grouse, at least in my Absolutely. Experience. Yep. Yeah. And then even if they do bust it, half the time they watch where they land and they just go point it again. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you know, you'll get a few of those that do take off and fly, you know, 50 some yards. But, you know, I found even our resident birds, flight birds, whatever, where we're at, they do not fly that far. So, you know, especially if I have somebody new out with me or young, they miss a bird, you know, usually if I'm by myself or, you know, I do have a first year dog, if I miss it, I'm not going to keep chasing it. You know, this, you, I had it, you know, I had a chance, blew it or, or whatever, but I don't, uh, I don't shoot a lot of them. I love, like, that's one thing I, I enjoy woodcock hunting around here if I can't make it back up north because I love chasing those wild birds in the woods. Like, that's what I enjoy. I really love the woodcock, like, new hunters. For people that have some experience, maybe I've taken them out on a pheasant hunt or they've been out on a pheasant hunt or they, like, understand, like, like, gun handling and stuff like that. I wouldn't take a complete amateur out into the grouse woods or the woodcock woods because it's just a little too much going on, in my opinion. Right, right. But those you know, especially with grouse too. I mean, it's for a first year, second year, you know, new hunter. It's not fun. I have found almost everybody I've taken out um, when a dog points a grouse and we flush it, they're like, "I'm like, why didn't you shoot it?" They're like, "I didn't even see it." You know, and it's right. it's right in front of them. You know, unlike a woodcock where you can get so close to that and have it come basically come right up in your face. I mean, I, that's more exciting for them to shoot something that they can get that close to that it surprises them. They almost literally step on it and then it's right in front of them. They can shoot it. So yeah, absolutely. I will definitely would rather take, you know, somebody new out, you know, and have them shoot some woodcock. And it gives them a good idea of what happens when like with grouse too, because then they're, they're trying to walk through that thicket. They're trying to manage their gun. They're trying to figure out like right. this bird boss, how can I even mount and swing a gun in this stuff? And then that woodcock, right. it, just, it just flies different because it goes, it's, Unlike that grouse that likes to stay low at 100 miles an hour and weaves through trees, that woodcock's like, okay, I'm going to go straight up and then figure out which way I want to go and then go. Right. Yep. 
Yep, I I agree with you. Absolutely. They there's a lot better shot opportunity when they fly up instead of out. But again, I agree though with you. Like I'd much rather chase grouse and hunt grouse heavy habitat and their heart it, it's there's just something different about them, right? That's why they call them the king. I mean, they're just not it's not an it's I've never once been grouse hunting and said this is an easy day. It's rare. Uh, you know, the only people that do that, you know, is usually early season when they're shooting an entire brood when they're not flying. You know, and, and I've been in discussions, you know, people with that, that, you know, our season opens September 15th. Half the time, they're barely, I mean, yeah, they're flying, but they're not strong flyers. They're going to land in trees. And, you know, you look at people that, that post pictures the first couple weeks of the season those birds are tiny. I mean, if right. you look close enough, you can probably see some yolks still stuck on their head. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, people are like busting these broods up and, you know, we got, you know, people in Michigan, you know, cause our, we have that quiet season from April into July, you know, the first day it's open in July, these guys are like pounding these covers and, you know, breaking up broods. And it's, you know, personally, I think if you're going to, train dogs on state land on wild birds. You need to wait, wait till like at least the, the beginning of August, if not the beginning of September, you know, cause you're not doing them any favors by pounding them every single day. So Wisconsin's closed a little longer. Ours closes tax day, April 15th and doesn't open again until August 1st. Yeah, so ours is like April, right around the same time, but ours opens either July 7th or 8th, and I don't think it's enough time. That's really personal. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I'm not a biologist, though. Maybe they can prove that it's not a big deal, but I that seems awfully early. I mean, I, even in come September, like when our season opens, which I think is like the 15th or 20th, 25th, somewhere in our late September, a lot of, I think it's later. I think it's like the 25th ish. Cause it norm, I think it normally somewhere in there, it's either the second or third weekend in September. Um, right. I, I've hunted early season before and it's hot and there's leaves everywhere. And, and yeah, I've, I've moved a lot of birds and multiple flushes cause you're into those broods and it's like, okay. Like there wasn't even an ethical shot here. I mean, I got more yeah. foliage in my face than I do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, and, and especially now, and, you know, I talked about this, you know, a couple of times is since social media has been out, people, and I don't want to say everybody, but there are so many people that will do anything to get attention on social media. They'll shoot birds on the ground. They'll shoot all of that kind of stuff, you know, shoot all these young birds, you know, just so they can post a picture on Instagram and, and feel good about themselves. Like, Believe me, it's not hard to shoot young birds, you know, before they're mature. It's, you know, that's always been kind of a, a touchy subject with me and, you know, just what people try to do and, you know, just they did it for the gram. So, yeah, I have a problem. and again, I, have a problem. I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, I'm out there to, I'm out there for the experience. I'm out there to watch my dog work, to be in the woods, to enjoy the right. entire, that's, that's, and then I just try to relay that experience on Instagram. Like if I get a bird or if I don't even get a bird, it might be a scenery shot. I don't honestly shoot that many grouse in a year. I'm not that great of a shot. I'll admit it. I, I mean, <laughs> I went years right. of shooting, I went years of shooting the air with my lab back then looking at me like, 
you ever going to hit one of these things? Yeah. And you know, and I've, I've hunted, I had a lab that I hunted with and I'm not going to lie. It's pretty easy to shoot grouse with a lab. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and that's what I started with. So even then my first couple of years, you know, and I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I will admit that from day one, I, uh, I struggled my first couple of years too. And I'm not ashamed to admit that, but you know, when you spend that much time up, you, you tend to learn things a little quicker and, um, you know, when I first started hunting grouse, you know, back in the early 2000s, there weren't, there wasn't any social media groups. We had like Michigan sportsmen um, that had some stuff, but they didn't have like the mapping systems. You know, people weren't talking about where they hunted or it was basically you found out by yourself. Um, and I liked it. You know, I mean, I learned a lot. And, and I told Aaron when I did his podcast um, back in the summer, when I first started hunting grouse, I would hunt in jack pines. You ever walk through jack pines? <laughs> <laughs> That's horrible. I, but there were grouse in there. And eventually I figured out they were on the edge of those pines, you know, on a, on a recent cut. So, you know, everything I learned, I, I learned by myself. I mean, you know, I listened to like, you know, the Heller brothers. I don't know if you know uh, Rick and Fritz. They're, they're probably some of the best grouse hunters in the country. Um, so, you know, any knowledge they shared, um, you know, him or Scott Grush that used to work for RGS, those guys, you look on any of their social media, they don't post a lot of, of what they do. But, you know, when Rick and, and Fritz do that national hunt, they win it every year. I mean, you're talking those guys shoot like 20-some grouse in a weekend. Um, you know, they could hit a hundred birds a year. That's normal. People don't do that. Um, right. but, but it goes back to show you that people that do that stuff that post pictures or they'll take the same bird and post 15 pictures of it. The guys that are out there really doing this, they don't, they're not on Facebook bragging about it. I mean, they're not, but they're the same people though. If you ask them some questions, you know, one-on-one -on -one and, you know, they'll answer your questions, but they're also not posting anything on Facebook either because anytime you get somebody that has that type of status, there's always the people below them that want to argue with them. You know, same so, with like professional, like real professional dog trainers. You don't see them on social media much because if, you know, the trainer's telling you to do something this way, there's going to be that guy that trained one dog versus 2,000 that says, oh, you're doing it wrong. And why would they want to waste their time trying to defend what they've built, you know, in the amount of dogs they've trained? So, you know, I've said that from day one. You do not take anything you see on social media. I don't take it seriously. No, and I agree. I mean, it also, it's always a highlight reel. I mean, you don't see the hours and hours. Like, for me, especially, like, I'll post some duck hunting pictures, right? Yeah, you don't see right. the hours I spent in the blind with nothing like mm -hmm. the birds never worked i wasn't in the right spot i got stuck in the mud <laughs> actually right. I I you know <laughs> and even i did that you know even this year if you you look any pictures i posted i think i didn't even start pulling my gun out till actually i think it was like october 2nd or 4th so i was up there already for a week before I even even started doing much, you know, setting camp up, running the young dogs, you know, letting them bump birds and everything. But I think after the first couple of days I was up there, I never posted another picture of a bird again. It's just, 
I don't know. I, I'm not in it for the attention. You know, I just like to get up there and, you know, get some, we had quite a few new people at camp this, you know, come through this year, you know, like my buddy, Brad, um, my good friend of mine, Jeremy brought his kid up. His kids just turned 16. Um, I gave I gave the kid his first shotgun. Um, one of the first ones I ever bought with my own money. Um, he still uses it. So, you know, getting people out like that, not carrying a gun, I'll carry a camera. Um, sure. And, and eventually, you know, and I was at that when I first started too. Like I was all about trying to kill as many as I could. And, you know, I almost kind of regret that just trying to, but, you know, I thought I had something to prove and, you know, and everybody that still has that mindset, they're all eventually going to get the same mindset that you get when you've been doing this for a while. And it's not about killing them anymore. It's, you know, I like watch I don't get to actually see my dogs work because they range a little bit further. But I tell you, when that beeper goes off and walking up to a, a pointer with a perfectly poker straight tail and I, that's that does it for me. You know, I could end the hunt right there as soon as I you know flush the bird. I could turn around and go on to the next one. I, I hear. I mean, I think I, you're right. Everybody goes through that phase. I mean, I, I went through that when I first started because I didn't I didn't grow up in a hunting family. I took on waterfowl hunting. That's where I started. And I mean, at first it was all right. I got my first bird. That's cool. Now I got some birds to land in decoys. Man, I'm starting like and you start to figure it out. Right. And then it, all of a sudden it's like, well, now I need limits. Now you start chasing limits. And it's like well, you don't have a good yeah. hunt unless you shoot a limit. And now, like, a limit's, like, the last thing on my mind. And right. it's, like, I want to watch, like, my dog make a good retrieve. I want to watch the person I took out kill his, like, get his first duck. I, I that's where it's at. Yep, that's where it's at for me. Let me take somebody out that is new to this or has never killed the grouse. And I tell you, my uh, good friend of mine, uh, Nancy Beth, she's a short hair breeder. Um, I met her probably... I don't know, six, seven years ago, um, she came up to camp. I want to say it was 2016 uh, was the first time she came with some more friends of ours. Um, she had never shot a grouse. I think she had, you know, killed a few woodcock. She kills her first grouse over uh, my pointer, Waylon. Um, and I'll tell you what, that to this day was probably one of the most memorable events I have ever gone through in this, in this hunting thing. Um, and then the next day I had a, another person that killed their first bird over uh, my harmony dog. So that I tell you that, that is where it's at for me. I, that feeling is, is awesome. You know, that's, that's why, that's what I like. I, I agree. I mean, I took some people out last year. I think it was, they never hunted over a bird dog before. So like they hunted. Over that's kind of scares me. That scares me though. A little bit. Agreed. Agreed. We did it at a pheasant, <laughs> we did it at a pheasant farm. It was super controlled right. environment. Right. Um, and we did a lot of talking ahead of time and pheasant farm birds hold pretty well. I'm the one going yeah. to flush it. I'm the one that's going to get shot, not my dog, which I'm okay right. with. If someone's getting shot, it's going to be me, not my dog. Cause I don't want to know my mindset <laughs> after someone shoots my dog. Like that terrifies yeah. me. Um, yeah. But like watching them, like, like they're awe of watching this dog work the field. Like they're just like, like just amazement of that. And, like taking some right. woodcock hunting for the first time and how they like a dog can just glide through those woods and they're so thick like we're stumbling we can't even move and the dog's running half speed to full speed and just like right through yep. it and it's like like those things like i just love watching people's eyes light up when they first experience something like that or 
you know, and I've hunted over a lot of dogs. You know, my cousins had short hairs when I was growing up. That's kind of where I got started in this. Um, my dad had a short hair, but she was dead um, before I was born. But going from people like weekend hunters watching those dogs and seeing how good they were, and then a couple years later, 15, 10 years later, when I start um, training my own field trialing, the the just everything that goes into a well-trained you know even if it's not not even a national champion dog but you know just a, a champion dog but when you get up to the nationals the level of of those dogs i cannot even explain that what a veteran grouse dog that's you know done that year in and year out like you said, it is just amazing to see that, but it's such a, a night and day difference. Like I, I grew up with those weekend dogs, seeing how good they were and thinking that's what a dog does. But then seeing those next couple levels that those dogs can achieve, it is absolutely mind blowing. Um, and that's why I like judging field trials. Like I've, I have judged hundreds of dogs in the last, I think I've been judging, I don't know, probably 10 years now. Um, and the amount of knowledge that you can get by judging a dog sitting on a four-wheeler watching them work, a lot of times I think I know more about their dogs than those handlers do. Like, I, you know, I've judged these dogs from, our, you know, Michigan, Ohio, you know, Illinois, Indiana. I've judged these dogs so many times. I know when they're about to go on point or I know when they're following a track or, you know, whatever they're doing. Like, it's so cool to be able to read everybody else's dog, not just your own. That's cool. That's cool. And I haven't, I haven't hunted behind a dog like at that level. I never have like nobody. I know, like I worked with an HRC for a while when I first got my lab, I never got into the tra I never got into the testing side of it, but I worked with a bunch of the guys there and I'm a full fan. I'm like, I'm a huge fan of working with clubs. Like I, I, right. I have a trainer, especially without experience, the friendships and the level of experience you can lean on. I'm a huge fan of. Oh, absolutely. Those um, HRC dogs are insane. Um, one of the uh, firemen I used to work with had some several, uh, grand national, whatever, uh, retrievers, Cody, and he had another one, the, what those, you know, and I can appreciate a good, any good bird dog in any venue or any format, but watching them do those blind retrieves and hand signals at two and some hundred yards. Once my dog gets past a hundred yards and I give it a command, he's like this. And then he's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, but you know, as soon as they whistle, that dog turns around and sits. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it is amazing. No matter what venue, you know, what direction you take with the dog, the level that people can take those dogs to um, it, I, it always, they always impress me. Any format is I'm impressed with. I agree, especially when you get to those kind of levels, right? When you're getting to the guys that are serious about it and like watching yep. that dog come up and like just looking like you just know, especially even if you're a weekend trainer, you're starting to get to train your first dog and you just, and you start to know what, how much time it takes to, and consistency, like just the true consistency it takes to train a dog to that level. I mean, yep. so much respect and appreciation there because there is so much time invested into that dog. You know, and that's the thing is, you know, I talk a lot of people, you know, especially my clients that have dogs, you know, we talk about that bonding, um, you know, that people have with a pet, but trying to explain something 
to somebody that, you know, has not spent hundreds of hours, you know, travel across the country with a bird dog, you know, just the places those dogs take you and the things you get to do, the people you get to meet, they're not always the best people. I mean, I'm sure a lot of, I know a lot of people don't like me, which I, you know, I always, I always giggle, I always giggle about that. Um, you know, it's that bond that you develop. It's, you can't explain it to anybody. You know, and uh, like I said, I lost Waylon in November and it was kind of sudden. Like he literally was fine. The end of September, he stopped eating and, you know, he went downhill for a year. And, you know, like I told, I told Aaron that that dog was, and I've had other champion dogs. Uh, my buddy Scott gave me a national champion pointer. So I know what the caliber of those dogs and I know what they can do. I've trained them. I've trialed them. But that Whalen dog was the first dog I bought as a puppy. It trained everything myself, start to finish, and put a championship on him. So that dog, like that dog changed. That dog changed me, you know. And when sure. he passed, I mean, that that was literally, I mean, you know, I lost my dad in 2007. So that was hard, you know. I don't want to say this was as hard, but it's, it's different. Um, just spending that much time. You know, like I said, we went to as far south as Georgia, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee. Um, you know, we spent some time in some southern states, um, Illinois, Indiana, went to the nationals in Iowa and Nebraska. Um, it's it just it, it's cool that I had a dog that could compete at that level, you know, at the nationals. Not that I did any good there, but at least we qualified for it, you know. <laughs> Um, and I always told people if he had a different trainer, that dog would have been a national champion. But, you know, I took three years off of running him um, when I left the fire department. So, um, you know, for three years, he didn't get trial. We just hunted. So I think sure. if I would have if I would have spent the same amount of time as I initially did with him, um, I, I think he could have been more competitive up at that that higher level. And that but, bond that's just created for those hours and hours of training and the travel. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to explain unless it's, it's hard to explain losing yeah. a bird dog or any type of dog where you put that much time into. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain. You know, and he, like I said, again, he, so many people shot their first bird over that dog and it's uh, it dude, it was, it's rough, man. Even now it's, it is still so hard. You know, I told you yesterday when I was sitting in my chair just looking at that picture all day uh, that Dave Veldman took of him and, and gave me that portrait. Like, I mean, that, every time I'm in the living room, there's that big picture of him up there. You, you can't help but look at it. So um, he's definitely well represented in the house. There's in my office, there's a whole wall of trophies and plaques and ribbons and, and everything else from that dog. So, yeah, he was a, he was a good one. And they teach us a lot along the way. I mean, it, it's just amazing. Like, it's just right. amazing. Really. Yep. And that was the first. So I had short hairs. How many short hairs did we have before we got Waylon? About four, five, four? Ivy, Danner, Hawkeye, four. Yeah. So, like, four. We had, like, four short hairs. Um, and then Morgan was the one that I really got started in with pointers. That, but I got her at six. So when she died that's what made, I went to Kansas to pick Waylon up. Um, and that dog is what got me into those pointers, man. Those, po I'm telling you that, you know, they always had such a misconception that they were hard headed. They were stupid. You know, they run big, they run away. They don't listen. 
that is abs. Everything that I just mentioned with him was the total opposite. Um, like back in the day, yeah, there, there probably were quite a few pointers that were just rogue. Um, but he never, he wasn't disobedient. You know, we went out to, uh, North Dakota two years ago. Um, he was ranging five, 600 yards out on the prairies. And then we drive back through the UP to, and we stopped at our grouse camp and goes right back down to 80, hundred yards. So, I mean, the, intelligence of those dogs to be able to do that is, is pretty impressive. I agree. To be able to have a dog that can recognize the terrain and know when yep. I need to range big, but then can really, yep. that's huge. And it's, it's, yeah. and I've heard this before. I don't know if I've ever said it. I mean, it's easy to bring a dog back in. It's really hard to give a dog enough yep. confidence to go out and range. You can't, can't push a rope, right? right? You can pull a rope. You can't push a rope. Um, and, and that's the thing is, you know, everybody's always like, oh, you don't want a dog from field trial lines or you don't want this or you don't want that. Give me that dog that that wants to be out there and let me adjust him to how I can be. You know, people are so afraid to lose sight of their dog, um, you know, and especially in the grasswoods, like people are saying they're hunting their, their grass dogs at like 20, 30 yards that you're literally watching the dog go on point and you're not even taking another step before that bird's coming up. You know, but I'm, again, I'm not saying to have them out at a 200 yards either. That's, you know, and everybody does things different. If the 200 yard dog works for you, fine. 30 yard dog works for you, fine. But I have enough confidence in my dogs of their ability that they're going to be honest when they're out of sight for me. Um, sure. Now, some of the short hairs I've had at times, they, you'd watch them like look around and, you know, they, they go <laughs> in and try to try to grab it, but you know, it's uh those pointers aren't anything like like people say they are you know um they tell a lot of people say they're not good for a first dog man that is it's such the opposite such the opposite with those dogs that's why i have how many do we have now seven pointers six seven six i don't know see and that's the thing i don't even know how many dogs we own anymore <laughs> <laughs> and we got we got another one coming uh, in a couple months or maybe into the summer. That's awesome. That's, I mean, that's I'll another, tell you. Go ahead. That, I was gonna say that's another thing. Like when you're up at grouse camp for that month, I mean, you're allowed. You can put some serious boots on the ground because you're able to cycle dogs in and out. Yep. Like for me, like if I take, I I keep my dog pretty well conditioned. She's ten, so she's getting older, but. It's hard to hunt a single dog for five days straight. My, I have more dog power than I have as far as my back can handle. Um, sure. You know, after, like, I think this year, I anywhere from eight to the, the day, horror, uh, Jesus, Jetta ran away. I think I walked 16 miles that day. So, you know, eight to 16 miles a day, I mean, and that's not even hunting a full day. So if I want to rotate dogs, you know, a lot of these are retired now. Um, sure. We have a few that we, that we don't hunt because they are older. Um, but even with the active ones we have, you can hunt sun up to sundown for two months straight and not wear those dogs out. Um, you know, and having, you know, and that goes back to the field trial, you know, breeding, they're a smaller, finer boned, more athletic dog than some of these big you know, 70, 80 pound dog, you know, that, that can't handle not only the terrain and the mileage, they can't handle the heat. 
Right. Um, so, and that's another reason why I, even people are like, well, I'm just a weekend hunter. I don't need a field trial dog. If anybody needs a field trial bred dog, it is the weekend hunter because they can go more miles. They can, you know, even the first couple weeks, even the first month of our season, it's hot. You know, those dogs can handle the heat. Those big 80, 70 pound dogs, they're not going to be putting in as much time as a smaller, finer boned athletic pointer or short hair, whatever you're, or Brittany, whatever. Um, the right. smaller dogs are going to be able to give you more per season than, than a bigger dog. Absolutely. I mean, and conditioning plays a part in that too, right? I mean, you can't just let your dog, I mean, I've seen it before, especially back when I was in the lab world, like you got a bunch of guys that bring their labs out that have been couch potatoes all summer long. They haven't ran right. it, like, and it's hot. I'm like, you guys, like, I, I hope you know how to, I know you, I hope you know how to read your dog for heat exhaustion because like, you're barking up a tree. That's pretty darn dangerous. Every year that happens. And even the smaller dogs, people do that with them too. But, you know, I learned this analogy from the, my men, my training mentor, even professional football players in the NFL linemen, they're in good shape, right? I mean, right. look at what they have to do. But you take that lineman in a wide receiver and tell him to go run a marathon, who's going to win? Right. The wide receiver, because they have less mass, they're not, you know, and we go over this constantly. If you look at some of those bigger dogs, the way they run versus a well-gated smaller dog, that bigger dog's going to be rougher on the ground. It's got more impact every time it hits the ground. You know, you're impacting those joints, you know, and we can go into like the whole lactic acid buildup in the muscles and just what they require. It's, it's, it's impossible to get a bigger dog to do what those smaller dogs can do. And, and if they're, even if they're both conditioned, I'm not saying those so bigger dogs are out of shape, but it's, it's a law of physics. I mean, it's, it's impossible to be able to do what and there's there's exceptions i'm sure there's right. an exception for right everything. right um, i'm sure there's a but overall there's a 90 pound short hair out there that can do 24 miles a day i'm sure there is probably somewhere right but that's not yep, the rule. probably that's the like in december when it's right. cold and yeah i mean there's always going to be those exceptions but you know for those people that are looking for their first dogs the best thing, and even what I did is I, my first pointing dog was a field trial washout. Um, and the only reason he was washed out is the people that bought him neutered him, didn't keep him, gave him back to the trainer. If he wasn't neutered, that, that trainer would have trialed him because he had the tools. That was my first dog that I actually put an amateur championship on. But I can't say I didn't train him because I got him at three. Um, but he was one of those that if he wasn't neutered, he would have been on the trial circuit with a pro trainer. Um, sure. So it's get those field trial washouts because most of the time, I would probably say 90% of the time, a short hair or a pointer is they get rid of them is because they don't run big enough. And by big enough is like, we go back to that thing where you can't push them out, but you can bring them back in. So if they're not running big enough for a field trial, that's perfect for a grouse hunt, right? So sure, exactly. you got that, that closer range. you got one that's already trained, that's hold, play, you know, holding birds, pointing birds, and probably retrieving and backing. So when I bought my first started dog, the only thing he didn't do reliably was back. But natural retriever, 
bird work was good and and that's what I started with. So I learned everything that I needed to know up to the point of that of breaking that dog, you know, handling and everything. He was ready to go. So I bought him and literally took him up north a couple of days later and I was grouse hunting. And it was well, he ran away the first couple of times because he didn't listen to me. But, you know, after we kind of got to know each other and, you know, he got used to me handling him, it, I didn't have to do any of that hard stuff, you know. Um, right. So that's a, a great piece of advice for somebody just starting out is and that's, you and see that's, those trial washouts. And also don't like like what you said, just because the dogs are washout doesn't mean it's a bad dog. I mean, like, absolutely not. I mean, some of them don't have the temperament to take that much pressure on the national stage. Some of them don't like, like you said, right. don't range far enough. Things like, yep. but all of those things are for high-level competition. Like, you don't need, like, you don't for the standard hunter. Even if they're putting in weeks every year, this dog is going to be more than what they would probably need ever. Like compared compared yep. to your regular weekend dog. So, and that's what I've always told people too. Like. Um, my buddy Scott Townsend that owns Crosswind Kennels, I've had, I, I honest to God, we've probably had 13 dogs from him. Um, and the thing is, is when he gets rid or moves a dog down the road, it has nothing to do with it not being a good dog. It's not, he's looking for a national champion. But right. I can almost guarantee every single one of those dogs he washes out and sells to somebody it will be a brag dog for them. Like it, it is a damn good dog. It's not national champion caliber. So it's not going to be winning nationals, but you're going to be cleaning up in the grouse woods. Um, I'm trying to think of who I can name that's had those dogs that have done, uh, been very successful in them, you know, and a lot of people are like, Oh, those are trial dogs. You know, you can't do this. You can't do this with them. There's a girl, uh, Lindsay Chartel up in, is she in Wisconsin? she bands with one of Scott's short hairs. She bands woodcocks with it. Um, there's guys that run NAVDA with a few of those. There's guys, are they the best duck hunting dogs? Probably not. Cause they are, they do have that thinner hair. Sure. You know, they're not, they're not designed for that, but you know, people are like, Oh, those are just trauma. You know, wrong. Cause I'll show you one that bans woodcock every single year. Um, you know, it goes back in just to how, you know, what you're going to do with it, make your plan and start, you know, start executing your training plan. And if you're looking, I mean, that's, if, if I'm looking, and, and I might be going down this road because my Griff doesn't get along with other dogs. So me getting a puppy and starting from scratch, it can't happen while she's still around. And depending on when her time comes, there there's a good chance I'm not gonna be able to just be run out, grab a puppy and get a train before hunting season. So, right. I mean, for me, there's a really good chance as much as I love dog training that my next dog probably will be a started dog, maybe a field trial yep. washout or one that just, or, I mean, down that road, just for the fact that I can get that dog, I can spend a couple weeks with it. Basic, like just, and it's not even basic obedience, but there's always obedience refreshing. But that absolutely. I mean, you have to get that dog has to be used to you handling it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And and that's a great way to build that bond is just going over your basic obedience. Yep. Just consistent. Once you have that leash 
in the end of that leash and your hand connected to that dog, that's when that starts. That's when they know you give them a command or, you know, e-call or whatever. You give them a command, that's when they learn they're going to need to listen to you now instead of their previous owner. Right. Yeah. I agree so, with you. So, And then, too, if, if you are having that dog that has issues with other dogs, once she goes, passes on, then you can start building up your dog power. Exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> then you get, then you take that immediate need, and I can get right back out into the woods, and I have a dog. And then yep. that dog shouldn't be alone. That dog grew up in with a kennel of dogs. I probably, probably should bring right. a puppy into the mix. Yep. <laughs> and if you need help convincing your wife of how to get multiple dogs, I'll just put her in touch with my wife, and next thing you know, you'll have 15 dogs and nowhere to sit on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's why I'm in the kitchen. There's no literally every spot is taken. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll give you like a little panoramic of these. Oh, <laughs> Mind the paint. We haven't finished painting in here, but uh, yeah. Oh. Did we lose you? I think the walk around the house kind of might have done us in a little bit here. Oh, it looks like we lost you on that quick walkabout, but you gave us a little tour. We saw all your dogs. We saw the entire pack, and and we didn't look at your paint, I promise. Yeah, I, you know, that's the thing. Like, the what is it? The cobbler's kid goes without shoes? Yeah, <laughs> the contractor doesn't get anything done at his own house. <laughs> priorities man you gotta you gotta go I know. And then, so you can take those that month off for grouse hunting yeah it's like 40 days about yeah so yeah that's what i did after i went up for 30 i got home and i was supposed to start a job so i kind of made an excuse and took another 10 days off after i got home <laughs> Perfect. i had some i had to rake some leaves and stuff <laughs> So are you going to make it back to Michigan anytime soon? Like Lower uh, Peninsula? I, uh, not to, I don't have Lower on the books, but that can always change. Um, I haven't announced this officially anywhere, but I can now. Starting Monday, I actually took a new role in my company, which is 100% remote. So that's going to give me a little more leeway on making trips a okay. little bit longer. Not that, I don't, not that I have more time off, but I can right. go take my camper and stay somewhere for two weeks as long as I have internet. I can work my Monday through Friday and get out in the afternoons when, when there's still an update right. on those weekends. Well, I'll tell you this, and it, I can't tell you what city, but at our grouse camp, we have 5G. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> you, uh, there's, there's uh, no excuse about not having internet. <laughs> Good to know. But I am actually heading back to the UP. We are, um, we're moving girls camp again and we're going to try the UP this year coming up. So, okay. East West side, or what are you thinking? Same, same exact place I was at. Um, some okay. friends of mine bought a resort up there. So we're just really? stay, we've, been, we've been staying up at their place, um, throwing them some money, you know, keeping them supporting, supporting our friends where we can. And they got a small resort in the UP and they're trying and they're living their dream up there. So, um, when we get off of this, you'll have to tell me the name of the resort. Cause I, like I said, I like to support the, smaller yeah, businesses cool. so if yeah, i do absolutely. make it up there cool well i'll give That'll... you this last i'll give you this little cup little bit here if you want to give any thank anyone or 
shout out your social medias or whatever. You know, the only person I have to thank is that crazy wife of mine for letting me have all these dogs and taking all that time off. So um, it's, it's funny, you know, you hear a lot. And most of the time, like guys joke about their wives, like, Oh yeah, the ball and chain won't let me go up or whatever. When I go up north, my wife tells me, if I don't come home with deer, grouse, or woodcock, don't bother coming home. So if I want to stay longer, I'm like, no, nope, didn't shoot anything yet. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's all about, you know, compromise. So if she lets you have 10 dogs, which most of them are hers, they're not all mine anyway, um, give back to that, reciprocate that, and, um, you know, just, just enjoy it. So it's it's nice to be able to – to have that many dogs sometimes it's nice to have that many in October, but the other 11 months a year, it's not always the best. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, like I said, everybody's outlook's going to change on this after you've, you know, done it for, you know, 10, 15 years, you, you start out with that. You want to kill as many as you can. And, you know, by the end of, you know, that cycle, you start the new cycle of, just watch my dog and, you know, take more people out. And I'll tell you what, that is probably the best part of this is getting the new people into it. Um, you know, finding those mentors or people to mentor um, and make it fun for them. Like, you know, don't take them on 15 mile marches and, you know, marginal right. cover and, you know, take them to where there's woodcock, you know, the, I'm going to tell you new people don't know the difference. Let them take them where there is woodcock. There's more action. Um, you know, you have more opportunities with them. It's easier for them to shoot. It's easier for the dog. So, you know, if you're going to mentor some people, just remember we all started somewhere. So, you know, just go easy on them and, and make it as pleasurable as you can. Agreed 100%. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're young or old. Um, I mentor a lot of after college kids, actually, like that right. 24 to like 24 to 30 year olds that want to get into hunting. I've mentored youth. I mean, they're all participants of what we're trying to which is conservation i mean right. without hunters we don't have the. i mean lands get sold off if they're not used i mean like it's a big thing i mean so the more voices we have the better it is and those and that mentorship goes a long way in keeping people invested in in what we enjoy doing right you know and especially in these states where there are you know we michigan we've been very fortunate here we have a decent population of grouse and woodcock we most of the time actively are now starting to actively manage um, our forests, you know, unlike states like Ohio, Indiana, where they don't do anything, you know, between you, Michigan, where you're at, and then you with Wisconsin and Minnesota, we're, we're pretty lucky here with, with what we have and the opportunities with the amount of state land we have around here. So, you know, help other people enjoy it and, you know, just, uh, you know, go easy on them when they're, they're learning just like we all did in the beginning. Exactly. And if we can cut that learning curve down a little bit so they continue to get out there, I mean, that's a good thing. You know, and, and again, don't hand them everything on a silver platter either. You right. know, don't tell them everything all at once. You know, kind of go over covers one day, you know, what weather does with the birds. You know, there's all different aspects of this that we all need to learn. You know, and I will say, I after my, when my dad died in 2007, we never got to grouse hunt together really because um, I didn't really – have as many dogs then I only had two but you know he had uh, had cancer for a few years before that so he was the one that got me into the hunting um, so 
everything I did, I learned by myself or listening to the few that I trusted on the internet on like those, those forums. And um, I would literally, I would take every piece of little information that they would drop and, you know, I'd remember that. Um, you know, people like Scott Grush and the Hellers and Frank Gillijanic and a lot of the guys, you know, I, I kill a few birds a year, um, probably above average, but when those guys say something, I still listen to them. I'm not going to argue with them. Like those guys. And I said, I've said this many times, those guys are not grouse hunters. Those guys are grouse killers. They, they kill more grouse in probably two weeks than a lot of people will kill their entire life. I mean, if, if you know what those guys are capable of, um, they can be dangerous, man. So they're, uh, those guys, if when they talk, listen to what they have to say. So, you know, don't be argumentative with everybody and, you know, just any, any information you can get, log it in and, and just try to use it some way. And you always can learn, right? Even when you think you got to figure it out, you might absolutely something and it's gonna be like, I never thought of that before. You know, and even now, like I think I, I started this in 2001. So about 20 years Every time I go and I learn something different and it's not always just about birds. It's about dog stuff or, you know, find, find a mentor that not only, you know, teach you about the grouse hunting, but I had literally one of the best bird dog trainers in the country teach me everything I know. So I lucked out, you know, and again, I've, I've told people that if you want help with your bird dog, find a local trainer, go start cleaning their kennels. You know, that is where I started at shit bottom there man like cleaning dog kennels and worked my way up and you know the amount of knowledge that i've you know gained in those i think i started hanging out down with scott like 2006 the amount of knowledge of his 35 some years there's i don't think there's anything that man has not taught me that he knows or tried to teach me i might not absorb everything at once you know Sure. Um, but finding those people that do this for a living, um, you know, that guy has won more national championships than anybody. Um, I think he's won 12 or 13 nationals now um, and runnered up and prob- runnered up, I would say, in probably two dozen nationals. So he's doing something right, you know, and I'll tell you, listening to, to those pro trainers and, and grouse hunters that, that do this a lot, that is the best piece of advice I can give you. I agree. I agree. You got to pl- you got to you got to you got to sit back and listen when there's experience. You have to be able to recognize what is true experience yep. and not just someone spouting off ass talking like they know what they're doing. Right. You know, and and again, like a lot of new people and we've talked about this on social media, a lot of new people don't know how to sort through all that BS on social media. You know, there's guys, and I'm going to tell you this, there are people out there that look like they are the best hunters in the world or the best dog trainers in the world and brag about that. When it comes to to meeting up with them in person and and doing some of that in person, it's total opposite. So don't believe everything you see on social media because it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz and the, the City of Oz. It's not real. Sure. <laughs> I, I, and, and like we said before, it's a highlight reel. I mean, it, it, you don't see right. the bad. You don't see the. You don't see the struggles or anything like that. It, it's always right. the It's always. It's always the highs. It's never the lows. Yeah, you know, and even like when you first asked me to do this, I mean, we've been planning to do this for. It's got to be a few months now, right? That we just, right. you know, one thing after another. But you wanted to talk about predator hunting. I, there, I don't. 
I can tell you how to spend money. You know, I can <laughs> tell you, I can tell you how much I've spent. I can tell you what to buy. And, but I mean, I'm not going to, I can call them in, you know, up at grouse camp that, you know, we had a, a few people come up that, that coyote hunted with us. I can call them in. I will call you coyotes in all day or all night, but I'm not, I'm not near that level. Most of these people are, I mean, that is a brand new sport to me, but there's a lot of cool stuff that comes with that. Agreed. Um, and and one of these days we'll, we'll get back into that. I'll, you know, I'll kill a few with those, those two thermals and everything else. And then we'll go into that. (laughs) It's a great, it's a fun little thing to chase in the off season too. Right. I mean, Right. In Michigan, it's open all year round. Like you can hunt all year round, um, sun up till the next sun up. I mean, the season does not close. So, you know, hunt them at night. And yeah. So, you know, I'll tell you, there's nothing like sitting out in the middle of thousands of, of acres of, you know, national forest in pitch black. You have no idea what is around you, you know, and you look through those thermals and, you, you know, you can see some some coyotes around you and they start lighting up. That will send chills down your spine, man. That is that the first time I did that last year, that that was when I got hooked. And I tell you, it's it's been interesting since. So it's it's um, not easy. It's a hard challenge. I mean, it's absolutely I mean yep. it's different. It's not we're not hunting prey. We're hunting a predator. Nope. They, they have eye, you know, they have good eyesight. They have good hearing. They have a great sense of their no their nose is like none other. You know, we've been out hunting where I've had deer walk 20, 30 feet away from me. I've in on the, that same stand. I've had Yotes look at me at 150 yards and bust, you know, turn around and go the other way. So they're, uh, they're an extremely intelligent animal. Um, but again, that's just one of those things that, you know, when we're up at grouse camp after we're done, we can go hunt those at night. And, you know, it's uh, just something to add to the fun while we're up there, but it is, you know, there's nothing like doing that in the middle of the night, looking through one of those thermals and seeing, you know, coyotes or deer 700 yards away. Yeah. Thermal changes things. I've got that little thermal scanner and it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's fun. I mean, it's just fun to play with. Like just even like around the house, I was playing with it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so, uh, I can laugh about this. And my wife's sitting in the living room right next to me. Um, that's how I justified buying that first thermal. I have two now. Um, it was winter time. And when we, with 10 dogs and there's a lot of snow, it's, it's hard to pick up poop. So, and that, that, like, I'll admit, man, that's, she does that. It's awesome. She's the, she does a lot of the, the poop picking up. So I'd stand at the door with my thermal scanner. I'm like, Oh, there's a pile over there. Cause you can see it glowing in the snow so that's how i sold it to her that you know it's easier to find poop <laughs> my See, I, went my, my, <laughs> I went around my house looking for cold i pushed that insulation yeah it works yeah yeah i tell you my mom didn't raise no dummy you know i'm a i'm a pretty good salesman so that that's how i sold that but you know she's i don't think she's not gone out with me at night i don't think so we're gonna have to change that here soon so that's yeah, a good time. It's definitely a good time. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, Brian. It's been great. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just been a fun episode. So yeah, I, I had a good time. I like kind of like just like the unscripted, you know, conversation. That's that's kind of a, a different take on it. And it's kind of like two friends sitting around a campfire. That That's exactly what my show is about and what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like we never met. Like if we're just hung out for the first time around a fire, like, yeah, I mean, we did, literally, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully so, you can make it to a real fire this October, or maybe next year or the year after. Yeah, so, we're gonna, I'm, we'll talk about that for sure. Um, yeah, hang absolutely. Out a, hang out for a minute. Um, all my listeners, as always, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't for you guys. I really appreciate it. Um, and again, until next time, keep chasing that experience. Thanks for tuning in to another killer episode on Paddle and Finn. Don't forget to go check out our website at paddle, the letter N, and fin.com. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel at Paddle and Finn. If you got a question, comment, want to hear from a future guest on a future episode, feel free to email us at paddle, the letter N, and fin at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Paddle and Finn on Facebook and Instagram. Shout out to our show supporters, Angler, the Angler Button and app just makes for a better time on the water and creates a virtual logbook for every fishing outing out on the water. Shout out to Rocktown Adventures, located in Northern Illinois, for all your kayaking, camping, and hiking needs. Shout out to Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com.